Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our ongoing series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. And here he's going to be looking at Genesis chapter 29, verse 32, through Genesis chapter 30, verse 13, and specifically the children of Jacob. We want to thank you for listening in to this episode. And here is James Jordan discussing Genesis 29 and 30 and the children of Jacob. All right, Genesis chapter 29. And we'll start reading in verse 31. Now when Yahweh saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb while Rachel was barren. And Leah became pregnant and bore a son, and she called his name Reuven. For she said, Indeed, Yahweh has seen my being afflicted. Indeed, now my husband will love me. And she became pregnant again and bore a son. And she said, Indeed, Yahweh has heard that I am hated, so he has given me this one as well. And she called his name Shimon. And she became pregnant again and bore a son. And she said, And this time my husband will be joined to me. For I have born in three sons. Therefore they called his name Levi. She became pregnant again and bore a son. And she said, This time I will give thanks to Yahweh. Therefore they called his name Yehuda. And then she stopped giving birth. We saw last time that this passage has basically got six sections in it. The first three are marked out by the statement Yahweh saw, Rachel saw, and Leah saw. Then we have the Mandrakes episode. And then the last two begin with the phrase, God heard. So that gives us something of a structure. There's no particular uh, chiastic or parallelistic structure here. It's just that the paragraphs can be easily marked out by these introductory statements. Now, the first group of sons are Leah's first sons, and that's in chapter 29, verses 31 to 35. We commented on the fact that the word hate basically means reject. The softest sense of it is love less, but there's a little bit more than that. There's a certain amount of rejection involved in Leah, and we discussed the fact that Leah, being the elder daughter and the one who was actually, in a sense, married first, might have expected to be first wife, but in fact she is forced to be second wife, and that's humiliating, and that's what she doesn't like, naturally. And now we come to the sons themselves. We can... Go now to verse 32, and the first one is Reuben, and each of these names is significant. Sometimes they are significant in several directions. Reuben, for instance, actually ties to three statements in the text. The first is, literally, he has seen Yahweh on my distress, or he has looked Yahweh on my distress would have been a better way for me to translate that. I'll change it. He has looked, Yahweh has, on my distress, which in Hebrew is Ra'ah Yahweh Ba'oni. Take out Yahweh there, and you've got Ra'ah Ba'oni, or Ra'ah Bon, or Reuben. Very similar. Remember, the vowels can flip around a little bit because they're just general sounds. So God looking on her distress, in answer, she sees and acknowledges that Yahweh has seen that her husband rejects her, and so he's making it up to her to a certain extent. That's one implication of the name. 
God looks on the distress. Also the statement, which is also given as a reason, for she said, indeed, now my husband will love me, will love me as Yahabani, Ban, Aban, the same consonants as in Reuben. Again, too close, and the text explicitly states that this is part of the meaning. But also, behold, a son, or see a son, is literally Reu Ben. So all of these tie in here. God taking care of her, or Yahweh, her ultimate husband taking care of her, her hope that her earthly husband will love her, and behold, a son. All three of those are connected to the sounds of the name Reuben. Now, it's interesting, in case you've never noticed it, Jacob's last son, Benjamin, was originally named Ben-Oni, son of my distress, which is almost the same name. You've got the same sounds in there and the same meanings. The first son is God looks on my distress. The last one is son of my distress. Leah is distressed at the very beginning of the marriage. Rachel is distressed as she dies and gives birth to the last son. So both the first and the last sons are born by women in distress. And that's something just to note in terms of the situation here. Remember that Israel is called to be circumcised and to suffer, be a suffering servant on behalf of the nations. That's their calling. That's why they experience death and distress more than the other nations do because they are taking the suffering of others. And that focuses down to Jesus who takes our suffering for us, ultimately. But that's an emphasis here, that there is a distress. And that's going to continue the Hebrews go down into Egypt, they'll be distressed down there and God will hear their distress and call them out. And so all of this is linked into the history of Israel in a large way. God hears distress, he takes care of people in their distress. And of course it also goes back to Genesis 3, that it is through distress that the woman will give birth to children, to the seed. So the first and last sons here are linked into the judgment of Genesis 3. How is it phrased here? I will multiply your pain and your pregnancy with pain you will bear children. It's not the same word, but obviously the same idea. And the distress on childbirth then is amplified through the history of the Bible into many different forms. For instance, if you have a baby, you're unclean for 40 or 80 days. I mean, that's an implication, that's an amplification of this distress of childbearing. So, here it is. As the mothers give birth to the new Israel, there's distress. There's an idea that there's a messianic seed or messianic community being born here. Matthew 24, when you see the great tribulation come upon the church in the A.D. 60s, this is just the beginning of birth pangs, it says. So all of that broader context for this idea of distress and affliction in connection with the birth of these sons, and particularly the first and last ones, which give us a major tie into that theme. We also want to notice that Yahweh opened her womb. In a sense, he's the father and the one who loves Leah, and Leah will gradually transfer her hope from Jacob to Yahweh. She acknowledges Yahweh, but of course she still hopes that Jacob's going to love her and care for her and give her back the position she thinks she deserves. At least I think we're entitled to think that's in her mind at this point, but she's going to be weaned away from that. We need to be ancient people 
hearing this in the synagogue every week, we would probably think back to chapter 16, verse 11, where Yahweh saw the distress of Hagar and provided for her. Hagar's out in the wilderness. God sees her distress and provides for her. Remember that God is the God who protects the weak. And so it is in these situations. Hagar is being afflicted by Sarah. She's a second-class wife. She has a son. Her becoming pregnant, she hasn't given birth to this child yet in chapter 16, but her becoming pregnant causes the first wife to give her a hard time. Sarah persecutes her because she's humiliated by the fact that Hagar is pregnant. Hagar is pregnant but hasn't yet given birth to Ishmael at this point. Well, Leah is pregnant. If she's the second wife and Rachel is the queen of the house, Rachel is probably not real happy about this. Instead of being happy about being pregnant and having a child, Leah is probably going through a lot of emotional distress because her sister's upset, so she can't be happy about it. She's upset. Jacob isn't all that happy. Jacob doesn't dare go around smiling and saying, Leah's going to have a baby because Rachel's upset about it. So there's just a fly in the ointment of her happiness throughout this whole situation that's part of it. And I think that thinking back to Hagar's situation, in that the same language is used, sheds some light on it. Leah's hope is expressed in this passage would be the hope that she would become the first wife as she's already been firstborn elder and was first married to Jacob. So we've discussed that. So the first son, a context of affliction and hope that her husband would pay more attention to her. And that's not going to really happen. He continues to have children with her. There's that much of a marriage involved, but not everything that she'd hoped for. I don't think Leah grew up thinking that she would be a second wife in somebody's household. This was not her aspiration. Why would it be? So she's having to adjust to having a lot less than she'd hoped and dreamed she would. And that's sad, but God makes it up to her. She has another son. I've got all these verses numbered wrong. <laughs> this is verse 33, Simeon. She became pregnant again and gave birth to a son and said, Yahweh has heard that I am hated, so he's given me this one as well. And she called his name Shimeon Hearing. Nothing about her husband this time. She doesn't expect anything out of Jacob at this point. Her hopes will revive next time around, but this time apparently things had gotten worse. Once we get to the chronology of this passage, we can sort of maybe tease out what's happening here. Rachel is even more upset that Leah is having a second child where Rachel doesn't have any. So you just put yourself in the dynamic of this month by month and you can begin to see how things might have intensified in that household. Rachel wants to have a baby. Leah's already got one. Now Leah's going to have another one. Rachel still can't have one. The antagonism that you can imagine going on, how strong it was, we don't know. I'm sure that they tried to get along with each other, but there were days when... There was a lot of crying and weeping and wailing going on. In fact, we see this. When Rachel saw she couldn't bear children to Jacob, Rachel envied her sister and said to Jacob, Come now, give me children. If not, I'll die. Well, this wasn't just said once. <laughs> this was said day after day after day. So Rachel's crying, carrying on, and all upset about this. And Leah cannot enjoy the fact that she's having a baby. And Jacob can't enjoy it. She's in a bad position. So she feels the hatred and she feels more that God is 
taken care of her, even if nobody else does. I think that we're entitled to see that much involved here. There's a double pun in this name as well. Yahweh has heard is Yahweh Shammah, which gives us Shemyon, hearing. Shemon, actually. There's a sound in there that we don't have in English. Shemon. And then also the statement, though, she explains it by saying, Indeed, Yahweh has heard that I am hated, and he gave. The phrase hated and he gave is close. Sanu'ah, Natan. Those sounds, if you compress them together, the commentators say that in Hebrew, if you say it out loud, if you say it the way it would have been said, is close enough also to flow into the meaning of Shimeon's name. Hated, but he gave, also seems to be implied in the name. But the primary meaning is Yahweh's heard. So, the first time, Yahweh sees my affliction. The second time, Yahweh has heard that I am hated. Both of those are there. God is a God who sees, also hears. He has heard that I am hated. doesn't really say he has heard my prayer, but he has heard the rumor. <laughs> Perhaps we can also read out of this from the way it's said. Yahweh has heard that I am hated. Has it kind of gotten out to everybody that Leah is not well regarded? I mean, in this marriage, initially, everything would have been kind of behind closed doors and all the distress, but maybe it's spreading out. And now everybody knows that Rachel can't have children. Everybody knows that Leah is rejected and thought poorly of. A lot of people are expressing sympathy for her, saying, Oh, poor Leah, I feel sorry for you. She's having to live with all of that. The word is out. But God hears it as well. What other people have heard... He also is heard and has acted on. That may be part of what's implied here, that in this community, now her situation is worsened to the fact that she's the object of a lot of sympathy and whispering and gossip and talk in the community as well, which just makes it worse. Leah's hopes that Jacob would love her for her son were fruitless. He still hated her. That is, he still rejected her. He still counted her as second class, just tolerated her. And she's starting to trust more in God. Nothing new here. I'm sure that you've always heard the passage taught this way, that Leah is gradually trusting more and more in God, and particularly in Yahweh in this passage. Remember, Yahweh is the name used through here, and then from now on to the end of the passage is God. Yahweh is the covenant husband name. God is the creator father name. And Leah is learning to see that Yahweh is her real husband. And none of us is good enough to be a husband. Our wife has to learn not to expect too much of us, just as we have to learn to expect not too much of them, I guess. Ultimately, the only person who can satisfy a human being is God himself. And so, when you expect too much out of any human being, you're always going to be frustrated. Well, Leah is only going to be frustrated if she expects a lot out of Jacob at this point. This will change. Leah will be accepted in the end. And it'll partly be due to Rachel that she is. But that's later in the story. At this point, she's not. And she's learned to trust in God and not to trust much in anything from Jacob. Well, then we have another son. Verse 34. Levi, or Levi. And she became pregnant again. And she bore a son. And she said, 
And this time my husband will be joined to me, for I have borne him three sons. Therefore they called his name Levi, which means joining. The phrase, my husband will join, will join is Yalave. And that just becomes Levi, when it becomes a name. Leah's false hopes revive with this third son, but they apparently are also frustrated. Again, when we look at the chronology, we can imagine that this is just intensifying. Rachel is not going to have a son until after this. Rachel becomes pregnant about the same time Leah becomes pregnant with her next child. But so far, Rachel still can't have children. The slave girl is having children, but that's not good enough. So Leah's situation is happy in her children, but unhappy in her husband. And what she expects out of this does not happen. My husband will be joined to me. I think we can read into that. I think we can read out of that, be better to say. He'll be joined to me. I'll be first wife. I have three sons now. Surely he can see that I ought to be first wife. And Rachel ought to be second wife. But no, that doesn't happen. Husband will be joined to me is not the same in Hebrew as for this cause a man will leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife. It's the same kind of idea, and you see the problem here in why the statement a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife in Genesis 2 eliminates polygamy. You can't be joined and cleave to two. And so, although she's having these children and occasionally spends a night physically joined to Jacob, there's no real joining here. And so, you just cannot be joined to more than one woman. And polygamy is wrong. Of course, this is accidental polygamy. It's still a problem. Well, finally, we get to verse 35. And she became pregnant again, and she bore a son, and she said, This time I will give thanks to Yahweh. Therefore, she called his name, Praise to Yahweh, Yehud-Yah. Scholars debate whether the Yah idea is in that, whether it should just be translated praise, or that the Da addition there, the Ah, Yehud-Ah, also includes the phoneme Yah from Yahweh. It may. I think it probably does. Praise to Yahweh. Leah's lamentation fully turns to praise her true and ultimate husband at this point. There's nothing about Jacob here. She says, this time I give thanks to Yahweh. Well, in a sense, she has every time, but the implication seems to be that's where she's putting all of her hope at this point in her life. Then she stopped giving birth. This carries us down to about the time Joseph is born, and Jacob's seven years of labor for Rachel, their second seven years, are over. And that, we need to just get this in case you don't know it. Verse 25 of chapter 30, it says, it came to pass once Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Set me free that I may go back to my place, to my land. And Laban said, Continue to work for me. That's the end of seven years. Well, that means that you start this marriage up. This is the first year of marriage. Two, three, four, five, six, seven. Joseph is born toward the end of the seventh year which means Rachel probably gets pregnant at the beginning of that year. Leah gets pregnant on her wedding night, and so Reuben is born in the first year. I don't think we ought to assume that they had a child every 12 months or 11 months. I think we should assume something a little bit more commonsensical. 
put Simeon in the third year just for this chart's sake, and Levi in the fifth year, and put Judah in the seventh year, about the time Joseph is born. Joseph and Judah are about the same age. And they are the next pair of doubles in the text. As you know, the stories of Judah and Joseph are parallel in the last part of Genesis. They both get involved with, you know, are tempted by a strange woman. Judah gives in, Joseph doesn't. They both have two sons that change position. They both leave something behind. Joseph is forced to leave his cloak behind. Judah leaves his signet behind, so forth and so on. All these are parallels, and they're doubles, and one becomes ruler and one becomes double portion son. So the fact that they're born about the same time is important. Well, now we drop back in time a little bit. Chapter 30, verse 1 to 8, Bilhah's two sons. So let's read that. Now when Rachel saw that she could not bear to Yaakov, Rachel envied her sister, and she said to Yaakov, Come now, children for me. If not, I'll die. Yaakov's anger flared up against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has denied you fruit of the body? And she said, Here is my slave girl Bilhah. Come into her, so that she may give birth upon my knees, and so that I too may be built up with sons through her. And she gave him Bilhah, her maid, as a wife. And Yaakov came into her. Bilhah became pregnant and bore Yaakov a son. Rachel said, God has done me justice. Yes, he has heard my voice. He has given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. And Bilhah, Rachel's maid, became pregnant again and bore a second son to Yaakov. And Rachel said, A struggle with God if I struggle with my sister. Yes, I have prevailed. She called his name Naphtali. Rachel's distress. What are we supposed to learn from this? What is being put into the history of Israel through this as this community is being formed? If Leah has to learn that only Yahweh is her true husband, Rachel has to learn that only Yahweh can be a true father for children. So the word God, creator and author of things, is the word used in this section. Of course, Jacob says this. God is the one who gives you children, and Rachel says it as well. She acknowledges that only God can be the true father of children. Of course, Psalm 113.9 and other passages talk about God giving children to the barren woman and so forth. This is the point of Jacob's sharp rebuke to her. Jacob is well aware that only God can give children. His grandmother couldn't have children until God opened her womb. His mother couldn't have children until God opened her womb. So Jacob knows all about this business of God is the one who opens the womb and gives children. Whatever may be in Laban's family history, Jacob's family history is full of teaching on this. And again, I don't think we're supposed to imagine that one day out of the blue, Rachel came and blew up at Jacob and said, give me children or I'll die, and Jacob blew up at Rachel. This went on for some time, and we're told sort of one of the climactic events in their conflict, where he sharply rebukes her for insisting that it's up to him whether she gets pregnant or not. This event probably happened soon after Reuben was born and the issue came into sharp focus. That would be my guess. Now that there's a baby there and Rachel sees everybody taking on after Leah and her baby and Rachel has to fight the tendency to be mad about this, but she wants to be a nice aunt, second mother to this baby too, so 
On the one hand, she feels good about it. On the other hand, she feels bad and angry about it. And then she feels guilty about feeling bad and angry about it. And she's in quite an emotional state. And at this point, she demands that she have a baby. And Jacob says, it's not up to me. So she comes up with the traditional scheme. Rachel's design is to have babies through Bilhah. It's important to notice this. I think we tend to forget it because later on in the Bible the children are considered as having four mothers, but in a sense there are only two mothers here. The babies born through Bilhah are Rachel's babies. She's the one who names them. They're born on her knees. Now remember that was Sarai's plan with Hagar as well. Hagar's son was to be born on Sarai's knees. But when Hagar became pregnant with Ishmael, she decided not to do that. And so when Ishmael was born, he was not adopted by Sarah, Sarai, and that created the problems. That doesn't happen here. We don't read that Bilhah despised Rachel and decided to keep the baby for herself. These children were born on Rachel's knees, so to speak. I mean, this is just plain physical terminology here, born on my knees, in other words, as if they came out from between my legs and to my knees. That's what it means. They are considered as hers. She's the one who gives names to them. Leah names Zilpah's children later on. So these are sort of Rachel's second-class sons. They're good enough until Joseph comes along, and then they'll become second-class. So there's kind of a double situation here. These children of the handmaids have got the handmaid as their mother in one sense. They've got the free wife as mother in another sense. And that's important. Uh-huh. Genesis 4.19 Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the first was Ada and the name of the second was Tzilla. Ada bore Javal. He was the father of those who sit amidst tent and herd. His brother's name was Juval. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Sevilla also bore as well Tubal-Cain, burnisher of every blade of bronze and iron. And Tubal-Cain's sister was Naama. Now, if you look at this, you got three sons here. One is a shepherd and herdsman. One is a musician and one is a warrior. Well, that's Israel. <laughs> that's David. David is a shepherd. David is a musician and David's a warrior. So this is sort of the initial counterfeit Israel. We got two wives here giving birth to this counterfeit Israel before the flood. We even have a sister, and we're going to have a sister in this story as well. And this Lamech is one of these mighty men before the flood. And remember, Jacob is called a mighty man, a Gibor. And so there's something connected here with this story before the flood of a mighty man who has a nation coming out of him and does all these things that are like what come out of Jacob later on and are in Israel. I've never seen anybody explore this, although I have some books that might do it. But then, Lamech also turns out to be a poet. And we have the first song in the Bible, David-like, only this is not a real good one. <laughs> Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. Wives of Lamech, give ear to my saying. Indeed, a man I kill for wounding me, a boy for only bruising me. Indeed, if sevenfold vengeance be for Cain... Then for Lamech, 77-fold. This takes you down to the time of Enoch, where the sons of God start to intermarry with these people, and Enoch starts to condemn them, and we have Enoch's words recorded for us over in Jude. 
but this is the time of apostasy. But yeah, we have a first poem here. So yeah, I think they knew that polygamy was a bad idea and they just tended to ignore it and this sets something up that later on when David winds up with lots of wives, which he shouldn't have done, and Solomon winds up with lots of wives, which he shouldn't have done, I think there's sort of a key or a grounding back here in the story of Lamech, which stands as a warning against all of this right down through the years. What the actual ethics are of this business of sleeping with the handmaid in order to give birth to the children, this is surrogate motherhood. If you want to get into the ethics of surrogate motherhood as it comes up today with test tube babies and all the rest of it, here's where you'd have to go. And all we're told here is this is what happened. Whether Jacob should have said, no, I won't do that. It's his wife who wants him to do it. I don't know. It seems immoral to us. And it seems immoral based on what the Bible says. But all we can say is this is what happened and this is where we are. At any rate, Bilhah's children. These are Rachel's children too. So Rachel has something she can point to, even though it's not everything that she would like. Still makes her feel inferior that she can't actually get pregnant. Verses 4 to 6, Dan. She gave him Bilhah, her maid, as a wife. Jacob came into her. Bilhah became pregnant and bore Jacob a son. Rachel said, God has done me justice. Yes, he's heard my voice. He's given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Vindicated me is what's behind Dan. God has vindicated me. God has vindicated me. We see that Rachel has been praying to God. She regards the son as an answer to prayer. That's important. Sometimes you hear Rachel was real carnal wife. Leah was the spiritual wife. No, uh uh-uh. Doesn't fall out that way. We got two different women here. Both of them love the Lord. Both of them love their husband. The situation is such that each one has some spiritual growth and adjustment to go through. But they're both looking to God. Rachel thanks God for this. She feels that God is behind some degree of vindication. Okay, I am at least worth something as a wife because my handmaid that comes with me and is a part of me, she's had a child. And this son is an answer to prayer. It's interesting the general word God instead of the covenant name Yahweh is used here and hereafter in the narrative. There's a stress on Yahweh as husband, covenant God, and the preceding story of Leah's children. The contrast seems to be between God as creator, father, and Yahweh as husband. I think that's been talked about enough. Then the next son, Naphtali. Naphtali means struggle. Bilhah, Rachel's maid, became pregnant again and bore a second son to Jacob. Rachel said, a struggle of God, if I struggle with my sister, yes, I've prevailed. I don't know how she thinks she's prevailed, but we'll discuss that in a second. Who'd she prevail against or with? She calls his name Naphtali, my struggle. I think Rachel's struggles with God are with God. A struggle of God. Now, if you don't have this translation, yours might say a mighty struggle or a great struggle. Because the word Elohim implies is taken up from the word for might or strength, the mighty one. Some translate it that way, but I don't think that you can make sense of the passage if you translate it that way. I had a mighty struggle with my sister and I prevailed. Well, she didn't prevail against her sister. Leah still has more kids. And they're really coming out of her body and not out of any handmaids. So, if the struggle is primarily with the sister, Rachel cannot credibly say that she's prevailed. 
You have to say that she's struggling with God. Well, now, notice how this anticipates something. Jacob is going to wind up in a wrestling match with God later on. And he will prevail. So this is an important statement here. It's kind of buried in this narrative here as an anticipation of something later on. Rachel's struggles with God in prayer anticipate Jacob's later struggle with the angel of Yahweh, even though a different word is used. doesn't matter if a different word is used. doesn't need to be the same word because it's obviously the same scenario. Struggle here is a rare Hebrew word meaning twist. can sometimes mean almost deceive, but not quite. But something that's twisting. It seems to imply agonized prayer. Perhaps an overtone of the twisting of the body in childbirth. Rachel struggled with Leah, but by means of prayer to God, not by fighting with Leah. What good would it have done her to fight with Leah? Common sense tells you that, although that's not what we do. We're mad with God, we fight with other people. (laughs) But Rachel seems to understand this. I'm sure that she and Leah had harsh words from time to time, and it comes out later on that they're not entirely happy as sisters. But we can't say that they hated each other day after day either. We don't know. They lived together for a long time. They probably mostly got along. But what good would it have done for her to wrestle with Leah? She has to wrestle with God and say, God, give me children. And so the wrestling is with God. And these two sons, let's say, that's enough on that. Who she wrestles with, again, I think that this is something that as we read the text and hear it for the first time and begin to notice things, we would want to keep that on a shelf because later on, Jacob wrestles with God. And God says, you've wrestled with me and you prevail. So Rachel again gives thanks to God for this child. She sees it as a contest with Leah, but really a contest with God for God to vindicate her. These two sons were probably born during the seven years and are older than Joseph. We could stick them up here. Oh, let's say that Reuben's born here and we have fights and finally Rachel gives Bilhah. I don't know that that would have occurred to her right off the bat. I imagine she kept trying to have children on her own. But let's just say that Dan is born here in the fourth year and Naphtali in the sixth year. That gives us enough time for the psychological dynamics to work out. So these two would be older than Joseph as well. All the other sons that we look at are probably younger. In fact, we know they are. Joseph is older than all the other sons that we're going to read about. I keep stressing that because the Sunday school leaflet theology that we have says Joseph is the youngest child. And you still occasionally see commentators, they try to get all six of Leah's children in these six years so Joseph can be the youngest. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work for the next statement that we find here. When Leah saw that she stopped giving birth, she took Zilpah and gave her to Jacob. Leah has to have four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, and then stop bearing and kind of figure that out. How long does that take? Hmm. I've been having one child a year. Now I can't have a child. How long does it take for her to figure that out? We have to add another year or year and a half in here for her to realize she's barren. Then she has to give Zilpah. Zilpah has to have a couple of children. And then Leah has to have her last two children all within six years before Joseph for the Sunday school version to be correct. It obviously can't be correct. Joseph is discussed last, but these sons are not being discussed in precise order in which they're born. And the reason Joseph is discussed last is because there's a miracle that opens the womb. He's the child that's born on the other side of the miracle. 
So there's a very obvious theological reason why he's mentioned last. He's the miracle son, just as Isaac was the miracle son after Ishmael. All of these earlier sons are Ishmael's, so to speak. And Joseph, the miracle son, comes last. But he's not last in chronological order. He's not the youngest. So just eliminate that. Get that out of our minds once and for all. It cannot be. Oh, Benjamin would be the youngest by far, yeah. In fact, when you study it out, Benjamin is born after Joseph goes down to Egypt. So that's one of the more fun things here to eventually get to. Let's see, the birth of Joseph may be why Rachel stopped sending Bilhah to Jacob. See, uh, if these two sons are born here and then Rachel has Joseph, she probably said, okay, Bilhah, <laughs> I'm taking him back. You can't have him anymore. Now Zilpah decides to have kids. I mean, Leah does. Leah doesn't say, oh, this is, I think, what we also have in mind. As soon as Rachel starts having children with her handmaid, Leah says, ah, well, if she's going to use her handmaid, I'll use my handmaid. If Billi has children, then Zilpah can have children too. So right away, Zilpah starts having children as well because the two wives are fighting it out through their handmaids. No, that's not what it said. So again, if you have that in your mind, I mean, these are all things that I was kind of taught or picked up going along and then over the years studying this out, you see, oh, this doesn't work at all. Leah does not give her handmaid until she sees that she can't have children anymore. So we're really down a couple of years further, the eighth or ninth year of the marriage here, after Joseph is born and several years after Bilhah's children are born. Leah doesn't send Zilpah in as part of a fight with Rachel. It's more, well, she can't have any children anymore, so, and she notices that, well, yes, we could use handmaids here, so let's have more. Verses 9 to 13, we can do this and we'll have to stop. Zilpah's two sons. Now when Leah saw that she had stopped giving birth, remember we got to have a year, 18 months in here at least for her to figure this out. She's weaned the child, assuming that she nursed him. Of course, they probably had wet nurses and maybe didn't nurse him too long. But you know that ordinarily if a woman is nursing, she doesn't usually get pregnant when she's nursing. So if she stops nursing and then months go by and there's no more babies, she says, hmm, okay. Now when Leah saw that she stopped giving birth, she took Zilpah, her maid, and gave her to Yaakov as a wife. So this is a real wife, and yet, you know, Zilpah... Leah's made boy Yaakov the son. And Leah said, see, Leah gets to name him. Leah said, what fortune? So she called his name God. God. Gad. And Zilpah, Leah's made boy a second son to Yaakov. Leah said, what happiness for women will deem me happy. Ooh, there's a phrase that gets caught up later on in the Bible, isn't it? So she called his name Asher. Two sons, Gad and Asher, these would have to be younger than Joseph. Don't have room on the chalkboard here. And in your notes, this is all sketched out anyway, on page 79. I've got the whole list here once we get it done. But these sons would be born after Joseph. Gad, she says, what fortune? Gad means fortune. Now don't go plugging in ideas of chance or what we think of as pure fortune or luck in that. He just means a happy circumstance from God. And then the second son is named Asher, which means happiness. And you know that there is, in this part of the world, also a goddess whose name is happy. 
the happy goddess. What's her name? Asherah. When you read in the Bible about the Asherahs, this is the same word. And of course, then the liberals say, uh, huh, huh, huh. These names come from pagan gods, the god of fortune and the goddess of happiness. No, they don't. They're just the same words. They have the same language. So, fortune and happiness. And in the statement, all generations will deem me happy. All generations will call me blessed is the way Mary, the mother of Jesus, says it. Pretty much the same thing. Women will deem me happy. Yeah, she's got six of them now. And so Leah is happy about things now. She seems to have become adjusted to the situation. And that sets us up for the next story that there's a sense in which Leah's become adjusted to the situation she's in. And now there's going to be an opportunity for things to change. The story isn't over yet. She's actually going to be reconciled to Jacob and her situation is going to improve and it's her Son that's going to make that possible. Which is nice theology. It's the son who comes along and does something to reconcile the mother to the father. And there's definitely some messianic type hidden in that. We'll have to look at just a little bit when we get to the mandrakes. We'll do that next week. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.